0: Talk Radio.
1: Good evening everyone and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight it is November 6th, Thursday of 2014. And tonight our guest is Andrew Meacham, <clears throat> who is the author of the book Selling Serenity. Uh, we're going to bring him on in a minute. First I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge laylet support group. For people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether, our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to book. Our guest Andrew Meacham is with us right now. We're going to bring him on the air. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing this evening?
0: Good. Thanks, Ken. Good to talk to you.
1: Well, it's great to have you on the show. Well, we were talking a little bit before it started, and I was just about to say that I had uh, went to treatment in Minnesota in the mid-1990s, so I was right in the middle of the period that you were talking about in your book. Was it
0: by any chance uh, the Hazelden facility?
1: I did not go to the Hazelden. Actually, I went to a kind of uh, renegade facility the first time, which it was actually had some good things about it, but we'll get to that you know later i want to talk about your story tell me about who you were working for why you were in the middle of all this why are you such a knowledgeable person about all this
0: well <clears throat> i started in 1986 at a company called health communications they were a hole in the wall company in pompano beach florida they had one book that uh had hit the bestseller list at that time, uh, number four on the charts, called Adult Children of Alcoholics. At the time, I myself had some five years of sobriety in AA. Um, the book did great. they It spawned other books in the sort of what I call the recovery movement, a lot of people call it. And, you know, it just snowballed, man. I mean, there were conferences. There were people coming Um, The conferences got bigger. We had them further across the country. Um, The ideas spread. And that's kind of what Selling Serenity is about, about the, the way that these ideas of addiction and dependency sort of at that time spawned and fed on each other and generated new ideas. And as somebody who... Hey, I always wanted a writing job, and I liked being around healthy stuff. Um, I knew it beat drinking, and but at one point, I was surrounded by AA uh, in meetings, um, and these therapists that I talked to all day at work, you know, and their books and the magazines we we're putting out. Um, at a time when recovery was kind of peaking in America it was um it was before any kind of examination or analysis or is there an alternative to a standard 12 step methodology for everything and i mean every behavior was in vogue and it it just got to be a little too much for me um so I made some changes while I was there, some good, some not so good. Um, you know, I, I, I had been researching uh, moderate drinking as well. I interviewed a guy named Herbert Fingeret. I read his book, Heavy Drinking, which I think is an excellent book still. Um, mm-hmm. I researched guys like from University of Washington, um who was it? There were a couple of guys up there. That were Marlott. Doing... Ellen Marlott. Yes, yes, Marlott, and some other guys from University of Texas. And there were just little pockets here and there. And, um, of course, Stanton Peel became kind of a good buddy. and um, But there's no support system, you know, when you decide to go moderate, um you know, you're especially then. I mean, that's why I'm glad to see what you've got a network going now. Because there's the one size fits all is great if either A, it fits you, or B, it somehow improves your life. But if you decide that that size doesn't fit for whatever reason, um, that support flips on you, and every thought you've ever had. Uh, is basically from the devil. Um, you know, I, I don't know how. You, you know, the, I don't know what kind of words I can use here, but I mean, it sucks. It's every everything that you have, everything that came out of you, is is suspect. Um, even though surely you use your own brain and your own volition to get there in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: one of, the, a, 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 one of the things I'd like to ask you about, and this is one of the things that you know came up, when it, you know, when I was going to treatment way back uh, twenty years ago now, and uh, you know they were telling me all these things. You know, the one I went to was half cognitive behavioral, half twelve step. So that was right,
0: which week. is progressive so. for that time.
1: It was definitely it was uh, called Cedar Ridge. It, it's uh, still around. It's still progressive. But, you know, the 12-step half of it to me was like, well, where's the science base behind this? It looks like faith healing to me. Where's the evidence? And, of course, no one had any. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about the the collision between 12-stepping and evidence base?
0: You know, it was always kind of like oil and water. AA and the so-called... I don't mean to call them so-called, but they were—I mean—they had earned come by their degrees, honestly. I guess you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, who were just so gung-ho about AA, like I don't know, John Wallace up your way in Minnesota, and uh, there were a bunch of others, and who, yeah, you know, they quote guys like George Valant, but about alcoholism because he was instrumental. In, uh, I guess he's the one who discovered that certain uh, fathers could pass on certain types of drinking behaviors to certain sons. And, um, you know, that kind of sort of hinted at maybe a genetic predisposition, even though the gene was never nailed down. But um, mm-hmm. uh, Valen also talked about people maturing out of drinking. Mm-hmm. Of heavy drinking, maturing out. I mean, think about that. Think about how that sit, would sit with the people you were in treatment with, with the people that we've been in groups with, the people your listeners have been in groups with. The idea that anybody who ever had a problem drinking could, quote, mature out because they simply got older and, um, you know, develop responsibilities, they got more mature, it didn't mean as much to them anymore, they weren't hanging around with the same kind of people, getting the same social reinforcement, um, and therefore they just drank less and it was okay now, and it was not a detriment to their life. That was absolute heresy. And yet it came from one of the scientific founders of alcoholism. So they cherry-picked the science, um, uh, and certainly, with you know, that, that's one example. Uh, I know there were others. I mean, you know, uh, but that—that's that, you know, nobody could, nobody could. You—you you couldn't mature out. You had this thing forever. Oh, and so this is the tautology. What I was going to say is that so whenever. You say, well, what about these people who, they were, you know, they were drinking all the time. It did cause problems in their life. They did seem to drink more over time. You know, uh, the, the criteria that people would normally use maybe to identify alcoholism. And then later, no, they, they just drink some, and they're okay. You know what their response is? I'm not talking about when I say they. You know, I mean the 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 whole cadre—people from 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 your regular rank and fall person in the age to their sponsors to the leaders to 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 the, the 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 recovering counselors in the hardcore treatment centers to the people in the who run the treatment centers to the psychologists and psychiatrists up top. They all say, um, "Well, those people were never really alcoholic to begin with." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a perfect tautology. Uh, You know, yes,
1: you can't do science science that way. You know, you have to have the diagnostic criteria. They have to predict something. And, you know, so someone that's diagnosed as alcohol dependent should follow, you know, the outcomes for a person with that diagnosis. And if many people that get that diagnosis have many different outcomes, well, that just tells you that uh, people with alcohol dependence can have many different outcomes
0: exactly and and it also depends on data having data that is reliable and your your when the treatment centers themselves um didn't really have hard data, you know they were um taking outcome surveys uh, say three months six weeks, maybe six months and and accepting self refer self um descriptions on the phone from their callers about how, whether, how much or whether the people were drinking and then saying that they had such and such a success rate and even though you know <clears throat> uh even those rates weren't very good um and then beneath that you have AA and that's this is this, the Hazelton um, a method, you know, what do they call it—the Minnesota model. You just kind of yep. steer people towards twelve-step groups, which has zero data because they mm-hmm. hide behind that shield of anonymity, which conveniently protects them from ever having to to uh, prove the efficacy of their method. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so science one, is one. really at a uh, at a you know. At a loss, it's never been you, – you, you, I would challenge anybody to really justify with figures um, the casual claims that people throw out about how AA, quote, works at all for even half the people who try it.
1: Hmm. Well, of course, when we're talking about something being effective, we have to compare it with a control group. And that's what we almost never see done. Uh, You know, there was a study done by Jeffrey Brands that compared uh, 12-step treatment to a control group. And, well, the control group did better than the people who got the treatment. And people were upset about that. And they said, no more control groups.
0: I'm sure they did. Just like there was a study in the British Journal of Addictions uh, back in the 90s that compared one hour of counseling with six months of intensive therapy and the outcomes are equal. Mm-hmm. You know? So so clearly uh there are other factors that inform how well people get. Mo- like motivation and, and uh a really dirty word, um I don't know, values, uh I might agree with the twelve step people that the word willpower is 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 too simplistic, but I don't agree to the extent. I mean, clearly there's choice here. How do the, how do they even get to the twelve step meeting? You know, and then they then they turn to another fudge word, God. You know. Yeah. It just drives you crazy after a while if you try to think about it. And then what? I, I didn't blame them so much, but I became very hostile towards the professionals, the people with PhDs. And I thought, come on, you guys are scientists, right? Kind of, sort of. Uh, mm-hmm. Won't you ever call this out? And instead, They were smitten by the street smart people in AA with the tattoos and who, uh, you know, they walked in thinking they were high and mighty because of their academic degrees. And those simple people sure put them in their place and they found out how it really works. It's almost condescending the way that they talked about people in AA, Um, you know, while pretending to, to elevate their wisdom. And what people didn't look at were the social dynamics, the experience of being in those groups and in some of those treatment centers, particularly the really hardcore treatment centers, um, and the kind of ego stripping that goes on. And I I just think, you know, if this stuff is really as legitimate as you say, why do you need to try to brainwash me and strip my ego down to its rudiments like this was some kind of synonym cult in order to make it happen it should it should be able to be demonstrated to me on its own merits and my intellect should be something that you um, at least have room for you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. if you can't praise it at least don't condemn it that's kind of a red flag isn't it
1: people are condemning
0: your intellect
1: Yeah, yeah, you know
0: One word that kept
1: coming up over and over in the book uh, from the recovery stars themselves was paradigm shift. The paradigm paradigm shift was to abandon science and return to the dark ages.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, And... I remember asking a guy named Charles Whitfield, who was uh, he wrote uh, books about the inner child that sold pretty well, and he was a psychiatrist, so he was a, kind of a disappointment to me. I, I liked Charlie, and I thought, you know, the best thing I could say about him was not about any of his books or his ideology, which really kind of disturbed me for the most part. But I thought if that guy, if you know, if I had a flat tire, he'd probably come help me. Um but, you know, I mean I really I was it was a very lonely time. I had to search for things. I was like so, mean, so many people who were just seemed uh uh you know, they were in it to promote certain ideology and they didn't care about people at all. I mean, honestly, there were some that it felt like that and maybe that's because a lot of times I was dealing I was challenging their ideology and so our experience wasn't was a little bit um yeah, you know, you know, contentious. But Whitfield I asked him one time to say, okay, please, please assure me that the inner child is a metaphor. Because when I'm talking to you sometimes, it doesn't sound like a metaphor. It kind of sounds like something you believe exists, the inner child in us. And he wouldn't give me that. He said, well, it's a metaphor that's become a reality. And after a while, this is like talking to du- people in Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it's like you don't know where reality begins and, and, and fantasy ends. This is like real to them—the inner child, um, yeah. The addict is that—that that speaks to me. Um, you know, <sighs> I don't know. It was a—it was a—an interesting. Time, because it was so full of passion, and the things that now um the the welcome improvements, like your group, like uh, secular organizations of sobriety, are now life ring sobriety um you know and other organizations that have sprung up, the fact that it's not so taboo anymore. Um, to to criticize uh or have differences with twelve step groups the fact that there 's an internet where people can comment and I know we got trolls and you know there there 's bad stuff about the internet, but also there 's some really good stuff about the internet the fact that people can say what the hell they want and not be shouted or shut down because you 're in a room full of people all those mm-hmm. things now that make that make this the 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 the, the Added knowledge and sophistication good were absent in the late eighties and nineties. You know they weren't there, and so it really was like um a one dimensional world
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they were yeah, high like off of the, the experience best. of discovering new addictions, which also happened to fill their empty beds mm-hmm. and happened to sell yeah, their okay. books.
1: We're going to go there in a second. I just want to say that the one thing I like best about the Internet, since you mentioned that, is that we have available to us databases like the PubMed database from the National Institute of Health. You can go in there and look up, I mean, from your own home, you can look up the abstracts of all these papers published in medical, scientific journals. You can get the straight go right there go right to the source. You don't have to... uh, try to find an academic library and then get a special pass to get permission to go in to look at journals, you can actually see so much stuff right now that you know is legitimate information that, you know, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to fool all the people all the time anymore.
0: Yes, it is. And um, that's fantastic, too, because that journal stuff can be expensive.
1: Um, Oh, yeah, you know. I mean, I wrote... I used to
0: repeat, you know, when I was more active in AA and that was, uh, you would sometimes see the real world intruding, you know, like when I started joining as, as, I guess, a head of a group. And so, you know, you go to these GSR meetings, general service, and, um, you know, I remember one time they were talking about T-shirts and are we going to sell T-shirts at a little meeting we had? And... um some And, and you know, some big book thumper got up and made a very shaming speech about how selling stuff violated the traditions, and um, we ought to really think long and hard about that. And you could feel like the power, everybody started tucking their tail between their legs. And then somebody else mentioned the money that we would make, um, and everybody immediately voted to sell the T-shirts. Um You know, so there were times where the real world world intruded. Um, And there are times the real world is intruding now, by the way. Um, I've been seeing articles. There's there's an article recently about AA being sued by, uh, as being named in a lawsuit by, what is it, out in California somewhere where you've got a woman Uh, who. Carla
1: Prada suit.
0: Yeah. Very interesting, you know, and I don't know if AA, um, you know, should be held culpable. That's for itself. That's for, you know, a jury to decide. But I do think it's a useful lawsuit because it's going to foster a discussion about influence and, um, you know, about coercion. Where does choice begin? Where does coercion end? And uh, the little subcultures or or, or with cult-like dynamics with NAA, where you have some of this sponsor couple arranging a romantic relationship between people, Mm -hmm. um, knowing about a guy's violent history, particularly towards women, that they don't choose to disclose. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know that's 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 not the only case. I uh, was I saw something on an our narcotics anonymous website the other day, looking around, kind of thinking about this interview, and there were there were um, apparently there's other other complaints about um, violent people who and uh, who are you know floating through the rooms of these twelve step groups and people starting to really. Um, you know, look at them as as some of the more savvy members already do as just, you know, just rooms full of individuals and some of them are sicker, as they like to say, than others.
1: One of the amazing things to me is that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in the United States has no sexual harassment policy in place. Um, I think Alcoholics Anonymous in Australia and Great Britain do. They've adopted them. But in the U.S., they refused. Uh, I know someone that was trying to get one put in place. And, uh, you know, the GSL, the main office in New York, said, no, we're not going to have a sexual harassment policy. We don't need one.
0: Interesting. Interesting. It probably smacks to them of a, quote, outside issue, even though uh it it really isn't an outside issue i mean i know the narcotics anonymous um you know guidelines before they go into a meeting say you we don't want you bringing guns or knives into the meeting and you know i mean there are certain behavior guidelines um, and but it has been um I mean, that, that that was always the thing that bothered me in a general sense. I'm not a woman, but but I am sensitive to power dynamics, and um, I guess it doesn't surprise me. Eh? It was set up by men. Uh, there were I did a story back when I was working in the health communications days about around 1945, when some literature started to be discovered. Um, I mean, I mean, we later discovered. To, uh, about blacks coming to meetings um, you know one leader saying to another leader and I quote like it or not Negroes are going to come to us for help and you know what we're going to have to do is make them feel welcome um, you know almost reluctantly resignedly um uh, there were, there was a study also that I covered about a sociology professor who used to go to AA meetings in Bakersfield, California, and just observe the dynamics. How the blacks sat in the back, uh, were not, you know, ever, uh, you know, of speaking or in leadership positions. Um, but it's hard to study, you know. They don't participate in studies. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that they have this um, where courts can send people to AA, um, and AA accepts it in violation of their own traditions of anonymity by having people sign a piece of paper to say that they were there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they've had a monopoly for so long but I think this stuff, you know, like this this Carla case, I think that might just start to crack it a little bit because now you have a death. And there's something about death that makes people um pay attention and and say okay, what are the dynamics here? You know.
1: Well, yeah, I mean the way Judges have been sentencing violent offenders. Some of them have no history of alcohol use at all, and they're sentenced to AA because they, they're rapists and sexual predators. And
0: that's, you know, sex You mean so you can fe- say, uh, I, I, alcohol kind of made me do this, and so I'll go to AA, and that way I won't get a harsh sentence?
1: Well, the interesting thing I've I've seen... And I don't know if you know Monica Richardson, who uh, mm-hmm. is uh, very involved with the uh, Carla Brata case, and she does another radio show about stop. It was originally called Stop Thirteen Step in AA. Now it's called Safe <laughs> Recovery. She's the. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, she just finished a movie about AA that's going to be released very soon. <laughs> wow. um, really. But, yeah. you know, very critical, and you know she she brings forth a lot of this data. There are uh, sex offenders with no history. Of alcohol abuse, who judges sentence to AA because you're a sex offender? So you need this will cure you because it's spiritual. Mm-hmm.
0: Utterly bizarre. One-stop one shopping.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: It's it's almost like having a solution um, is is more important than what the solution is, or, or appearing to have a solution you know, kind of treatment, you where we are treated when, uh, like you're sick, uh, pressure-treated lumber, you know, uh, in you soak it in creosote and now it's treated. And so like people um, can be uh, immersed in this solution and come out not wanting to drink or drug.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of reminds me of the days of patent medicine when they had laudanum and Think that you're a you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Cure all for everything.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. It'll it'll make you feel better. It'll it'll uh, it'll cure your asthma and your Alzheimer's and your arthritis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so I'm, a, uh, when you, I'm, w- I'm curious about when you were, if you don't mind talking about your own experiences about when you were would um, raise difficulties like this or. Uh, Say something quote from your head uh in the early days, what kind of a response did you get? I mean, you know did people tell you to um, to stop thinking that you know to just shut up and work the steps, or you know I mean, did you get that kind of um brow beating um, you know Response like you were a, a, a plebe in a in, in the Marine Corps and had to be brought down, brought down to speed.
1: Well, I didn't have a lot of contact with twelve step programs, but I can tell. I had a little, so I can tell you, uh, the second treatment program that I went to was a pure twelve step program. It was a regular inpatient. Actually, it was in Saint Joseph's Hospital in Saint Paul, Minnesota, mm-hmm. so, and. Uh, I was there for 11 days. This was much later. This was after all the insurance was cut back, so they only gave you short stays, you know. Right. Um, So it was uh, for 11 days, and the first group I went to, they were talking about uh, Step 11, about being in conscious contact with God and seeking only to know his will for us. Um, This was 2002, right after 9-11, and I said, yeah, but guys in the airplanes that ran the airplanes into the World Trade Center, they thought they were doing God's will. They thought absolutely. they were absolutely contact with God. I mean, what kind of uh, what kind of bullshit are you teaching me? Mhm. Yeah. After that, uh some of my fellow patients when they saw me, they would make the sign of the cross against me.
0: Mhm. I noticed a similar dynamic when things would happen um yeah, yeah. Like that th- th- there were cults related. I mean like in nineteen ninety eight, I guess it was, ninety seven, Heaven's Gate people, uh out in California, forty some odd people, or was it Oregon? They thought a-, a spaceship was gonna come and pick them up and so they um they all killed themselves. Uh <clears throat> the Heaven's Gate cult and they had Like, I don't know, $5 in their pocket for their fare to get on like it was a taxi. And I remember bringing that up and, um, you know, even just after meetings and people, um, you know, stuff like that cuts pretty close to the bone. Um, uh, There was a guy telling me, and this was an N.A. meeting, and he said that, well, I try not to judge, you know. I try not to judge what they do um and and then I noticed that maybe to uh, um my um unease that he had a tattoo on his arm of the monk setting himself on fire you know the monk who self one of the monks in Vietnam here set himself on fire um and I said I said okay so let's say I'm not judging these people for you know but let's just call it expressions of nervousness that I have. These are expressions of nervousness about mass suicide. Um, but people didn't really want to talk about that stuff, you know. They don't like to talk about about the subject of how people can be controlled, Um it's like when it comes to addiction, we have no choice. We go there, we get a higher power, and God takes care of it. But when it comes to the dynamics of the group, there's no mind control, there's no coercion, everything is choice.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, there was I got in an argument with
0: a woman on Facebook the other day about the uh, Carla uh, case, and uh she wouldn't even go so she wouldn't even acknowledge that when the state withholds your driver's license uh on the condition uh until you go to aa meetings that that is coercion that is not choice you know she said we would have to agree to disagree Mm-hmm. So, I guess when they're pouring water down your throat and you're on that seesaw, you know, and they got the rag over your mouth and you're on Guantanamo and you finally give up how your buddies planned 9 11, that was something you chose to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I went to Wikipedia recently and was looking up uh, brainwashing and uh, thought control, and they're kind of denying that it exists. And I was rather surprised by that, you know.
0: I'd be curious to know who wrote that.
1: Yeah, after Jonestown, you know, the majority of people committed suicide willingly in Jonestown. They didn't have poison poured down their throat. You couldn't do it that way. Uh, You know, to believe that there's no thought control, uh, no, there are techniques of thought control. Uh, There's smoke bombing. There are things that get people uh, really hooked into something very strongly, telling them they can't trust their own thoughts. You can't talk Absolutely. Their own brain. They have, which of course is
0: the message of AA. Absolutely. You're and there's a million um there's a there's a million um little cliches that kind of reinforce that idea. Stinkin' thinking, My best thinking got me here, um, when I'm in my head I'm in a bad neighborhood. Um Robert Lifton, who coined the term brainwashing, um after interviewing, I guess, Americans who were, you know, imprisoned by Chinese, um, who called those thought-terminating clichés um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. part of loaded language, which was loaded language being one of the criteria for cult, along with, you know, a vision for the future, a vision that this group has something that's going to transform society, a distrust of the outsider, this us and this them, love bombing, like you said, when you first come in, you know, you're showered with affection and attention. Now, AA obviously has certain things about it that are not uh, cult-like, the organization as a whole um, Mm -hmm. or set of groups because you don't live there. There's not one charismatic leader. But That doesn't mean it doesn't have certain cult-like features, because it's not something that, when I was at Health Community, I did a lot of study on this. The people I talked to said that a cult is not, you know, all or nothing, it are clusters of characteristics. Mm. Uh, And so when I used to talk to Margaret um, uh, Singer, yes, Margaret Singer. Singer, yes, uh, she was, I mean, you know, the 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 guru of, of of cult of study, cult study of psychology. She interviewed, she did the exit interviews of the people coming out of Guyana after Jonestown. And I couldn't I couldn't get her to take seriously the idea that AA was kind of cult-like, and I respect that because she had seen, you know, people killing themselves. She uh, she also did a very nice comparison in one of her books about why the Marine Corps is not a cult, because even though there's all this breaking down in mind control, there is also accountability. There's a chain of command. Um, so I understand, you know, I understand. She's she's a she was a heavyweight, you know. She was she was in the big leagues and and she played with, you, with huge type, type type seriously deadly cult organizations, and I can claim that AA is one of those but i still think it's useful to look at some of the similarities between that uh there's a new book out called escape my life long war against cults by paul morantz he was the lawyer who successfully sued Sinanon, who uh you know who was bitten by a rattlesnake that they put in the mailbox he sued the center for feeling therapy in california's longest uh, lawsuit probably until um, well the McMartin was a criminal trial. Yeah, so this was uh might have been California's longest lawsuit. Um and they too, by the way, in the Center for Feeling Therapy were uneasy uh in the late seventies when the word of Jonestown came around. Um there's a great book called Therapy uh, Therapy Gone Mad about um you know, this group in Los Angeles and they were inventing human relations. Uh, And they were constantly doing evaluating themselves critically, doing inventories. Um, You know, it's almost like the mind is like a dirty kitchen, and you got to get in there with steel wool and Brillo pads and really scrub it clean. And that that's appealing to people who, you know, feel like they're uh, broken or in a bad place or, you know, have, feel experiencing some crisis and somebody can help them. But the older I get, um, the more I think that a brain should have nothing to do with steel wool. Those are two very <laughs> antithetical concepts. You know, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, Thought reform, mind control—absolutely. I mean, I—I I feel like I—if I can say this—I feel like I've seen it with my own eyes. I sat in an AA uh, clubhouse, um, just a little booth away, listening to a sponsor tell a new recruit how he was going to feel. Now you're not. You know, you, you're not John Doe anymore. You're a part of AA. And, and you know, just this is how it is now, and this is your priority, and this is what you're going to do. And you could see the guy's eyes just kind of uh, uh, glaze over and lock in. And I felt, and I know it's subjective, but I felt like I could sense the gears in this guy's head sort of stripping away. He was almost literally um rearranging this guy's neurons to think a certain way um and will it help him stay sober? I don't know, maybe for a little while, but uh, what 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 really keeps you sober? What, what what if other other influences come along that are that, that randomly that sweep him back the other way? Eventually you've got to believe as I believe that the kind of behaviors I was doing are inextricably linked with my life getting worse, and mm-hmm. guess what, AA people, that is very much a cognitive, intellectual formulation. hmm mm-hmm. It's also y- you can't disprove it. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so as people say, you can't intellectualize your way to recovery. Of course, you can. And I would argue that that's what most of them who are successful have done.
1: Hmm. Well, it's really interesting now that we have a whole bunch of epidemiological data, things like NISARC, the National Epidemiological Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, and we know a lot of stuff that's going on. And we know the vast majority of people with alcoholism recover on their own with no AA, with no treatment, Uh, It just takes time. And, you know, this is the exact opposite of what uh, has been the message of uh, alcoholism is the chronic progressive fatal disease. You will absolutely die unless you go to AA or have treatment. No, the normal outcome is you get better because you decide, boy, I don't want to do this stupid shit anymore. I grew up. I'm done.
0: Right. Well, if you do the numbers, it, you can only come to the conclusion that the vast majority of people uh, get sober on their own, because we got say in this country alone, you know, we got three hundred million people. We also supposedly have a ten percent rate of um, uh, alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got thirty million alcoholics. Um 1 in 10 is um say yeah, say what one, 1 in 10 is an alcoholic. Um but then also we have a 30% abstinence rate. So 30% of the country is abstinent. Mm-hmm. So if 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 some like 90 million people are abstinent, uh but one in ten is an alcoholic, then we've um what does that come to you? nine million abstinent alcoholics? AA They say they have a million and I'm sure they've been saying they've had that million for a long time, but let's say they got two, three, four million people, you know? <laughs> let's say they got five million, I don't know. there's at least as many people and probably more who uh, are are obviously sober outside of AA than NAA. And some people think that that's because of the, uh, these churches like um, the Mormons, the Pentecostals, I mean, very large bodies of people that uh, are not allowed to drink. And yet, obviously, if you believe that one in 10 is an alcoholic, have these alcoholic tendencies. Um, you know, so... I don't know. AA can go around claiming that they're the only thing that works, but again, it's just it's it's another example. It doesn't even stand up to the numbers and um it especially doesn't stand up to the numbers. If you don't allow yourself to participate in any studies, uh that I think mean, that's the only way you can protect yourself. You just you just refuse to participate and uh and hey, why should they? They've had a free ride for decades now. They have had The uh, scientific medical establishment at their back, which rubber-stamped the idea of uh, of first of alcoholism being a disease, I'm talking about the AMA, and then of addictions being a disease, um, not after any kind of debate, but by putting it on their so-called consent calendar. This is like a resolution calendar, because I remember what happened in the 80s. They just sort of rubber-stamped it through. They didn't really. They didn't care. It wasn't a, a thing of importance to them. But it helped the treatment centers and helped people write um, get insurance reimbursement by calling something a disease.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. But you know. And if, that also. If you believe, if you believe that treatment is better than no treatment, then it makes sense, you know, that you would want treatment for to be paid for by insurance. Unfortunately, the problem is treatment hasn't demonstrated it's better than no treatment.
0: I think it's what, interest, what was interesting about HMOs. You know, I think I felt like some uh, other people felt in the late '80s and early '90s who, I don't know, not, not not had kind of a jaundiced view of insurance companies. But all of a sudden, when HMOs came in and started demanding proof, you know, we're sort of thinking, "Huh, this is going to be interesting." what are they going to do about the proof part and these addiction centers could not justify um any kind of proof commensurate with with uh, the traditional third party payers giving them a blank check for in- automatic inpatient 28 days um so that inpatient 28 days uh became 10 pa- 10 days of outpatient and you yeah, know i mean it was just it was a dramatic slashing uh, at that time of, of benefits, uh, because the HMOs wanted hard data, and HMOs had, had basically taken over the healthcare industry, and it was at that such time, the same time, that these benefits were being slashed, and that these hospitals like like Charter and other hospital chains that relied on um, addiction treatment inpatient as a part of their capital. They be, that people began discovering other things to be hospitalized for, such as codependency. Codependency is what the heck is it? You know, it, 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 I mean, we publish books about it. I'm still not sure. It has something to do with um, taking care of people too much, and you know, starting with people who are related to people who are alcoholic and. Um, we actually sat in a room one time in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, and tried to hammer out a definition of codependency. I mean, I was there covering it for, you know, magazines. but um, and, and they came up with this, I'm sorry, but it was kind of an absurd, quote, definition, um, that because we were in Scottsdale, they called it the Scottsdale definition. Codependency is a painful dependency uh, characterized by... Um I don't know whatever caretaking and this and that, but they got hospital reimbursement they got- i mean they got insurance company reimbursements for you know codependency and then sexual addiction what is normal sex well uh that actually is culturally relative. what is normal sexual behavior um you know it it depends on what people have been brought up to believe. And it varies from culture to culture, um, but the pioneer of sex addiction treatment, Patrick Carnes, that was a concept he rejected. I interviewed him twice. He did not. He did not. He, he, said, he said that relativist arguments don't hold. This is a former prison psychologist who is very at home um, pathologizing. Um, uh, behaviors that he did not consider normal, which, if you read between the lines, is anything other than monogamous. And some people would say that 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 he was also, um, you know, that, that anti-gay. You know, I mean, I don't know if he was anti-gay. I know that he waxed poetic and tearful about the night that his little daughter was conceived. You know, as an example of healthy sexuality. So, well, my point being that um, all of these other ancillary addictions started coming about at such a time as the hospitals needed to fill empty beds. I don't mm-hmm. think that's an accident. It happened at the same time. Was it a conspiracy Did people actually map it out? Probably not. It just kind of, uh, that vacuum was filled. Mm-hmm. Um, and then came about, the most pernicious uh, part. Mm-hmm. which was, well, we now decided, Ken, that codependency underlies uh, alcoholism. We, deciding, being some master's level therapists and people that used to drink and quit or whatever, maybe they have a PhD, basically people that sell books who are now called experts. Um, we decided that codependency underlies alcoholism. And a couple of years later, by 1990, we found out, guess what? Trauma underlies codependency. What is trauma? They called it original trauma or original pain. Original pain is pain that you don't remember. You have probably repressed it. Somebody did something to you, but it was so traumatic that you repressed it. Well, that sure requires inpatient treatment. That requires outpatient treatment. That requires... My God, ongoing treatment because you've got uh you've got to get in touch with that, and that personally for me ethically was where it became too painful i, I was no longer merely supporting some uh, uh flaky but perhaps helpful ideas. I was now part of an industry that was creating victims, namely uh I believe uh, these older um people senior citizens who were now being accused of having perpetrated sexual abuse decades ago uh, that their accuser um, did not remember until they started reading our books and Hazelden's books and books like The Courage to Heal and doing all the exercises and going to these memory mills so they would take sodium pentothal and do interviews and then be, um, you know... <sighs> is suggestively analyzed by somebody videotaping the interview about their reactions. Um, And it's like putting popcorn in a microwave. You know, you take a a bag of popcorn, you put it in the microwave, you go for two minutes. Eventually, um, those kernels are going to explode and you're going to start remembering. You're going to have people around you helping you remember. And I believed, and I saw it, people... um, and, you know and then again because as we talked about earlier we've already demonized intellectual processes we've already decided um that science is something for cherry picking you know science is for uh taking somebody who believes in our cause who happens to be from harvard um you know that 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 that's where you want scientific credibility you to, to, a name somebody to endorse you somebody to come up with um you know with 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 words and and phrases um like this this um this the, this this kind of repression but in terms of the methodology of science the looking for replicability for 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 proof of these concepts even even the concept of repression I know it's the cornerstone of Freudian therapy and all, but I mean, it it was just, it was crazy. There was not, all of the evidence was that you could, clinically in the lab, implant memories. Anything from, I got my finger caught in a mousetrap, I got lost in a shopping mall, I fell off a horse, Elizabeth Loftus, University of Washington, would do these experiments again and again, and get totally sane people to remember specific events. And when she told them that you get a sibling to cooperate, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with these studies. And when, when the sibling, you know, would <laughs> say, "No, this was all, <laughs> this was all an experiment, and you were, we were basically lying to you," they would cling to the memories and insist that they were real. Um,
1: One of my favorites of uh, the uh, experiments with implanting false memories was they would implant the memory that you, you went to Disneyland and you got your picture taken with Bugs Bunny. <laughs> now, anybody that knows their cartoons knows that Bugs Bunny is Warner Brothers and he's not in Disney and he's not in Disneyland. People would remember this. Oh, yeah, I got my picture taken with Bugs Bunny at Disneyland. hmm <laughs>
0: Huh. and you get validated for it, you know. You 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 got people patting you on the back and when you when it's your parents sexually abusing you, you know you're brave. And when you um when you resist the idea, well, you're in denial, you're not you're not recovering. And when you recant, as some of them did, And uh, that's when some of the the ice started to break on this thing. People went on 60 Minutes and and other shows saying that they had decided that their memories had actually, uh, um, you know, been emerged, you know, been helped created by therapists and their support group friends and that this stuff couldn't have happened. They really weren't in satanic cults and they really didn't kill babies. I mean, this stuff was being said. I'm not kidding, mm-hmm. you know, remember this, they're killing babies. And by the oh, way, yeah. the higher up you go, the more outlandish the claims, um, the more it just proved, you know, that the mayor was involved, that the chief of police was involved, um, that just how cunning and baffling um, these uh, these Satanists are, and that's also why no bodies were ever found. Um, but when these recanters came out and started saying that they did not um uh, uh believe that this stuff had happened to them and they started reuniting with the parents they had accused, they in turn were severely ostracized um because they represented a threat to everything else that was going on um you know so you know it, it's very much like the dynamics although perhaps on a you know more intense scale of going into an aa group and um you know deciding that your experience matches them that your personality matches theirs that um you know whatever whatever uh controlling person uh washes up on your doorstep and wants to start having you call them every day was ordained by god and there may be some similarities, you know. I mean, I, I, I have formed some close relationships with people in 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 twelve step groups. I mean, you know, we did do some of the same behaviors, but, um, you know, that's that's only because I was able to ultimately um, steer very far away from the center of the storm, you know. Uh, I always, and I don't really spend as much time fighting it either, um, but, but I'm delighted to be able to talk to, to you and learn about that you're doing stuff with arm reduction, including helping people uh, who decide that Going cold turkey, that absolutely going to zero, is not necessarily something they need to do. I don't see any evidence that everybody who has a, a problem with drinking excessively needs to go to zero.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A big reason that I ended up going to zero was because I was just I was totally alone. There was no, you know, there was no other supports that's available. Am I totally terrified to think that if I had a glass of wine or something, that 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 you know my life would come undone? No, I'm not really. Um, But you know, it it doesn't hurt me either. But um, yeah,
1: about half. To have more choice. We have uh, you know we have the big survey data now. About half of people with alcohol dependence resolve it with abstinence and about half with controlled drinking.
0: So Mm -hmm. they're both
1: very valid resolution paths.
0: Absolutely. And I'll tell you, since he's deceased, I don't think he would mind, Uh, but my late uncle, a guy named T. Rothrock Miller Thomas, he was uh, on the Donahue show in the 80s um, after writing an article in the American Journal of Medicine. He was an orthopedic surgeon. He was one of the first doctors to come out of the closet and say, "I'm an alcoholic doctor," and in that article, he talked about the M. deity syndrome. And boy, if anybody qualified to be an alcoholic, my uncle Rothrock certainly did. He would go to surgery with his hands shaking, and you know, he he, he uh, uh, um, somehow emerged unscathed, but. Um, is a very smart guy and uh you know he fine and I, I saw him many times at absolute screaming drunk and, and you know he, he absolutely benefited from going to aa and he published this article and you know and a cover story i believe in the american journal of medicine it was on the donahue show talked about it um became associated with like john wallace and you know other doctors you know who that he admired and um and and um, anyway, uh, he was a believer in the literature and uh, the conventional wisdom. And then much later on, uh, when I heard that he was drinking a little bit, I asked him about it. And he finally said, well, I've realized that, you know, I don't need to adhere to this slavishly. I only drink wine, only at meals. And never more than three glasses. Um, So this is after going to AA meetings for decades. He still went to AA. And why would he not share this information with other people in AA? Why would he not share this information? Well, because he was a doctor and he understood these things and he didn't want to confuse uh, the little people, as he referred to, you know, plebeians like the rest of us, non-doctors, you know. I say that with affection, but this is what we're talking about. mm -hmm.
1: Well, we are running out of time, so can you tell us again the name of your book?
0: Yes, Uh, thank you. It is called "Selling Serenity: Life Among the Recovery Stars." My name is Andrew Meacham, M E A C H A M. The publisher is Upton Books, U P T O N. Um, That's a real—they're not—they—they're out of biz, but they were, uh, uh, you know. Uh, an, an actual publisher, um, not a Vanity Press, and they. Um, but you can still get it through Amazon, I'm sure, or somewhere.
1: Yeah, I got it through Amazon. It's, uh, it's available on Amazon.
0: Okay. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk.
1: Okay, thanks for being our guest this evening. Everybody come back next week. We'll have another show for you. So thank you, everyone, and good night.
0: Good night.